And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing, Ben? How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about Jim Carrey with this episode. Why is that? Because it's episode 23. Was that what the movie was? The number 23? Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if it was 23 or 27 or something else. <laughs> no, it's 23. Okay. I so never we... saw the movie. <laughs> I, I saw it in theaters. Ooh. <laughs> but there's another reason why this episode is a milestone for us. Mm-hmm. It's our first sound film. No more silent films. <laughs> it is from 1930, and it is The Bat Whispers. It's a remake of 1926's The Bat, so calling the sound remake of The Bat, The Bat Whispers, is, <laughs> is a pretty good titling move. I approve of this move. <laughs> so, since it's our first sound film, I thought it would be good to talk about sound and the change that that made in the film industry. The very large, dramatic shift that it was <laughs> for Hollywood at the time. Definitely. So, sound film had long been a goal of the movie industry. It's a pretty natural thing to kind of want once you've decided what film is going to be. You know, telling stories with characters and actors and stuff. But three problems persisted that made acquiring sound very difficult. The biggest problem was synchronization. Uh, The problem of ensuring that any sound recorded matched what was shown when it was played back. Especially since... For the longest time, this had to be done on two different devices. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you were recording onto some medium, and it was going to be different than what the film medium you were recording the visuals were, and then you were going to play back on two different mediums. So it was pretty much impossible to just keep anything in sync. The most common method for early sound film experiments was uh, a system called sound on disc, where basically you just played the movie through the projector, and you played the sound on uh, a gramophone. (laughs) You can imagine how tough that sort of system would be to try and have any kind of synchronization. Especially stuff like dialogue was just completely avoided with sound-on-disc systems. Um, The other two problems, however, were volume and fidelity. Early sound playback systems were far too quiet to fill a giant auditorium. It's much easier to throw an image onto a big screen than it is to make a speaker fill a space. Uh, And then early sound systems were also too lo-fi for anyone to really hear complicated sounds like dialogue. Uh, And certainly if you've ever listened to old gramophone records from the early part of the 20th century, like, it's very hard to understand if there are lyrics in the song, what someone is saying. Mm -hmm. In 1919, a man named Lee DeForest created an optical sound-on-film technology where the soundtrack was photographically recorded on the side of the film strip. Okay. And indeed, if you if you were to look at a film strip with an optical soundtrack, it looks like, you know, what a sound wave looks like on an editing system. You know, it's a visual depiction of sound that could be read by the projector that would then come out as audio. How would the projector be able to read that? So it would read it optically and then play it, translate the optical waves into sound information to be played through speakers. It's all analog technology, so the size of the sound on the uh, side of the soundtrack, uh, you know, how big or small it is, corresponds to frequency, so then that's a certain electronic signal, and then that's played through a speaker. I just keep thinking about records, right? Because records work the same way. It's analog on the needle. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to figure out how the projector would see the wave and then put that down. Like, it just, I would love to see one of these cameras. Yeah. Or these projectors, I mean. I mean, yeah, this is optical sound, uh, which is the same technology behind stuff like cassette tapes and Mm -hmm. so on. 
with the sound on film technology, as long as the sound and picture were recorded in sync properly, they would absolutely be in sync in playback because they're on the same strip being played by the same device. The first commercial demonstration of sound on film would be in 1923. Uh, it would be a set of shorts under the banner DeForest Phonofilms. <laughs> Uh, but implementation was still a problem, converting theaters to have speakers and to have the proper equipment to read the sound films, and then filming with sound as well, which meant locking down the camera and limiting the performers to the area of the microphone's pickup range. All of these hurdles meant that this stuff wasn't immediately adopted. Early DeForest phonofilms weren't dramatic features, they were shorts. They were largely celebrity interviews, musical acts, vaudeville performances, the kind of things that didn't translate well to being recorded by silent film. Uh, and these shorts would be played, of course, before the main feature. Kind of like the pre-shows when you go to a theater now. Yeah, exactly, for <laughs> sure. DeForest's monopoly on sound on film uh, ended in 1925 when an inventor on his payroll, Theodore Case, jumped ship to go work for Fox Films, where they developed a system called Movie Tone, which was also a sound-on-film system and would be the first sound system controlled by a major studio. Uh, it was at first used primarily for newsreels and shorts as well. Hollywood uh, feature film directors were still very wary of sound because of all the limitations it placed on making a movie. In 1925 as well, Western Electric would demonstrate a new sound-on-disc system where the phonograph turntable was mechanically interlocked to the projector so that as the projector ran, it also turned the record, uh, thus allowing for <laughs> synchronization between the two. Nice. Most of the people at the demonstration of this system were unimpressed, but one film studio owner who was quite impressed by the demonstration was Sam Warner, who convinced his brothers to <laughs> buy the system. Uh, and so in 1926, Warner Brothers debuted their first film on what they called the Vitaphone system, uh, a film called Don Juan, which had sync sound, music, and sound effects, but no dialogue. It's easier to get, like, a sound effect lined up rather than a continual dialogue with, like, yeah. the lips moving and all of exactly. that. Exactly. And uh, sound effects and music can also be done in post-production. Thus, uh, Don Juan was basically shot the same way you would shoot a silent film. So it didn't have to be limiting the director to think of the microphone and the sound on set and so on. Mm -hmm. Movie tone sound on film by Fox had the advantage that it was less prone to break down because it was just one system instead of two interlocked systems. It was also more easily edited and repaired if you're projecting sound on disc and the film gets a break and you're having to, you know, cut out the broken portions of the film and resplice it. Well, now it's out of sync with the record that you're playing. Right. Um, sound on film with movie tone was also easier to distribute because you were just sending out prints instead of prints and discs. Vitaphone sound on disc, however, was much cheaper to produce because it was two different systems. So if the theater you were sending prints out to didn't have the ability to play back the sound, you just didn't send them the discs. Also, the gramophone discs used for Vitaphone had much superior audio quality to the optical soundtracks available on Movie Tone. Mm -hmm. So the two systems competed for quite a while. In early 1927, Paramount, MGM, Universal, and United Artists signed an agreement to select just one sound system for all five studios, but to sit back and wait to see which system, <laughs> uh, Fox's Movie Tone or Warner Brothers' Vitaphone, won out between the two. Okay. In September of that year, Fox released the first Movie Tone feature film. Sunrise, A Tale of Two Humans by F.W. Murnau, which, like Don Juan, had music and sound but no dialogue. October would see the release by Vitaphone of The Jazz Singer, mm. which had musical numbers, songs, and dialogue in two scenes. And The Jazz Singer would become a smash hit. Yeah. It took some time for the studios and the theaters to convert over. The late 20s would largely be a transitional period. Theaters that did switch over ensured that they had both Vitaphone and Movie Tone compatibility. <laughs> 
Warner Brothers' first all-talking feature, Lights of New York, debuted in July of 1928, and through 1928, the studio racked up huge profits from its sound films. This prompted the other studios to begin trying to catch up, often by adding sound effects and music, or brief talking scenes, to previously shot silent films. We've previously talked about the 1930 re-release of Phantom of the Opera as an example of this kind of silent-to-sound post-conversion. Right, yeah. Film Booking Offices of America and RCA General Electric teamed up in 1928 to develop a superior sound-on-film system called Phonophone. But since the other studios were already spoken for with their systems, film booking offices and RCA decided to start their own studio to produce films with Phonophone, and they called it RKO Radio Pictures. Oh, is that why it has like that really annoying sound effect of dee 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 Yeah, at the start, because it's like, hey dude, we're in sound. By 1929, there were 800 sound-equipped theaters in America, but 22,544 silent ones. So studios still continued to produce films in both silent and sound versions, uh, often just putting out both versions, and then, you know, as a theater-goer, it depended on whether your theater could show sound or silent, what version you would get. Sound changed the landscape of film production quite dramatically. Early sound features were very limited in camera movement, and they're blocking because of the rudimentary recording technology. Uh, you couldn't move the camera around on these big elaborate dolly moves that we've been seeing in a lot of films lately, and actors couldn't move a lot in the frame, otherwise the microphone wouldn't pick them up. I'm just thinking about Singing in the Rain. Yeah, Singing in the Rain does a great job of like showing <laughs> what the limitations were of the early sound films. And because of this, many of the aesthetic advances of the silent film era were basically lost. And early sound films, once again, more or less resemble recorded stage plays. Mm -hmm. uh, frame rate had to be standardized at uh, 24 frames per second. What has it been? I thought that... I didn't know that that was different. Well, in silent film, it didn't really matter. As long as the film was played back at the same speed that it was recorded at, um, you were fine. Most films shot at either 16 or 18 frames per second. But yeah, as long as the projectionist knew what rate to play it back at, no big deal. With sound, however, now you had to sync to an audio recording. And it was right. found that 24 frames per second synced the best with the audio recording systems that were used. And if you played back at a different rate, you know, you were going to be out of sync, right? Yeah. And this is why silent films actually started to have this cultural reputation of looking like weirdly jankily sped up. Because if most of them were shot at 18, but now you were playing them back through sound film projectors, which played back at 24, they were going to come out too fast. The lights that had previously been used for film production were far too noisy, <laughs> uh, because they were these big giant arc lights, right. and you would just hear the hum of them. So quieter, but less powerful lights needed to be used, which in turn forced the development of more sensitive low-light film stocks, which then in turn gave superior image quality and allowed for shooting at lower light conditions. Oh my gosh, it's just like a ripple effect. Absolutely, That's absolutely. so cool. Early critics and film theorists lambasted sound film as tacky, <laughs> vulgar, and destroying the purity of the art form of cinema. <laughs> because the idea was that there was this theoretical, philosophical purity of cinema as telling a story with just an image. So cinema is about moving pictures, so it should be able to tell stories solely visually. Uh, it wasn't solely about the idea that sound was bad, it was the idea that adding sound to film was unnecessary because this language of storytelling had already been created uh, with silent film. And because um, the early sound films basically couldn't have the same degree of visual style mm. and panache of silent films, a lot of critics were just like, why would I not just go see a stage play? By 1931, Vitaphone and Movietone had both lost to RKO's phonophone system. <laughs> but as many theaters used only one or two of the three systems, prints were made in all three for some time, and RCA actually made deals to ensure that any new equipment produced by them was backwards compatible with the older systems. Remakes of silent hits in sound became very common, which brings us to the film we're watching today. Yeah. The Bat Whispers was released November 13th, 1930, just three days after The Cat 
Creeps, a sound remake of The Cat and the Canary. Why aren't we watching that? The Cat Creeps has not survived. Uh, So it's a lost film. There's no surviving prints of it. Even though it was, in fact, Universal Studios' first sound film. You're probably very disappointed about that because you much preferred Cat and the Canary to The Bat. Mm Mm-hmm. But we have to watch my favorite again. <laughs> that said, The Cat Creeps was not directed by Paul Lenny, oh. uh, who was a big part of why I enjoyed Cat and the Canary. Right. Lenny had passed away due to a tooth infection by that point, right. and The Cat Creeps was actually directed by Rupert Julian, the original director of Phantom of the Opera. Okay. Uh, Roland West, however, was brought back to helm the remake of The Bat, uh, so he is returning to direct The Bat Whispers. Mm-hmm. We should point out that if people have not heard our episode on The Bat and would like to check it out, it's episode 16. Yeah, absolutely go back and check it out because a lot of our information about that film and its story and where it comes from, we're probably not going to repeat here because it's all in that previous episode. Yeah. Bringing West back to direct the remake made sense because he already had experience with sound. Uh, His first sound feature was 1929's Alibi, and it had actually been nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Oh, they were doing Oscars by this point? Yeah, the first Academy Awards ceremonies were in 1927, with the first Best Picture Award going to two films, the World War I airplane fighter plane drama Wings for Best Production, and F.W. Murnau's Sunrise for Best Artistic Achievement. Always looking to innovate and push boundaries of film technology, West chose to not only shoot the Bat Whispers in sound, but also on 70mm film. How new of an invention is that? It's not a new invention. The thing about 70mm is it's just, your film strip is just bigger. People had experimented with it, but the thing about 70mm then as today is it's super, super expensive because it's a bigger system. West choosing to shoot in it, he was using a film system called Magnafilm, where not only was it 70mm, but it was also widescreen. Uh, So all films that we've been seeing up to this point are shot in what's called Academy Ratio, uh, which is a ratio of 1.33 to 1. Uh, Most casual film viewers will just kind of know in their heads as full screen or square images. Yeah. Widescreen film would not be common until the 1950s, but Magnafilm was an early attempt at it. Uh, It gave a ratio of 2 to 1, and it was largely actually developed to compete with Fox, who had put out a 70mm film system that they were using around 1929 to 1931 called Fox Grandeur, which was a new system Fox was trying to put out at the time. However, widescreen films, especially 70mm, would fail to find success and adoption in this period. Ultimately, the era of widescreen really wouldn't come until the 50s. And this is basically because converting to sound had already been a super expensive process for the theater chains. (laughs) So converting to widescreen 70mm film basically was an untenable expense for these theater chains. Uh, Especially since not only had they just paid for the expense of converting to sound, but also everyone was in the midst of the Great Depression. Yeah, I have things to say about the Great Depression. Take us away, Sarah. (laughs) Usually when we do these films, if it's been adapted from something, I talk about what it's been adapted from. We already did that with the previous episode on The Bat, so I thought I would give some historical context to this film when it was released and everything, uh, which means talking about the Great Depression. So throughout the 1920s, the U.S. economy had been booming. Mm -hmm. People were buying more and more stocks uh, in the stock market, not so much to, like, support innovation as it was to either get rich quick Mm -hmm. or just random speculation. Yeah. To kind of give you an idea of what this kind of looked like, between 1922 and 1929, the market value increased by 218%, -hmm. which is about 20% per year. Wow. Which is, yeah, insane. Part of the reason why this was happening is because there was this new thing called buying on margin. So the average Joe could be like, yeah, I want to buy some stocks. Um, They'd go to a broker. They would only have to pay like 10 or 20% of the cost of that stock. Mm -hmm. And the broker would pay the rest um, and it would be essentially like a loan. When it came to the stock market crash in 1929, it was in October. 
there had been like scares about this bubble bursting throughout the whole year. Okay. But then it really happened in late October. A lot of different factors led to it bursting on this particular day, but it was not helped by the news headlines warning of a panic and things like that, kind of like stoking the flames a little bit. Right. So stocks opened that week lower than anticipated, causing some people to be like, oh no, I'm going to sell stuff. And then people being like, oh no, people are selling stuff. Maybe I'll sell stuff too. And it's kind of going downhill from there. Right. With these stocks failing after the actual crash, brokers started calling in their loans to try to get their money back from people. These loans for the on-margin purchasing of yeah. stuff. Uh, so people couldn't pay back these loans, so they would go to the banks t to get their savings mm -hmm. to pay back. Turns out the banks had been, without their permission, buying stocks themselves. So they had no money to give people. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that's a lot of distrust of banks and the market itself now. Meanwhile, as all of this is happening, the agriculture sector is pumping up crops at pretty much an unsustainable rate through overcultivation. Mm. This was kind of happening throughout the 20s and late 20s, but it really came to a head in the 30s because of a massive drought that happened because of change in weather patterns. Right. Which would end up causing the Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. The drought that caused the Dust Bowl actually came in four waves throughout the 30s, uh, which I didn't know, but because people couldn't recover from the first or second or third wave, uh, it just kind of seemed like one big long drought. Sure. But the first of it hit in 1930 and 1931. So with the drought, there's less food able to be produced, uh, so then prices go up, no one has money to buy food, so the farmers can't afford to pay people to go get the other crops, so crops are rotting in the field, food is rotting on the shelves, it's just a bad situation all around. Yeah, yeah, the whole system collapses. Exactly. And kind of related to that system, because of the global gold standard of money being tied to how much gold mm -hmm. people have, this crash had repercussions across the world, which we will see in Germany later when we go back to Germany. Oh, are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> By fall of 1930, there have been kind of more and more panics between the initial crash in 29. People have lost confidence in the banks. The banks can't even, like, pay anyone back. So the president at the time, Herbert Hoover, decided maybe it's time to help out. Uh, until now, he's just been saying that the crisis would run its course. Sure. Um, and it's just been getting worse, so let's see what we can do. Hoover's government loaned the banks money, thinking that that money would then be loaned to businesses to hire employees back. Right. That isn't what happened. If it did do any good, it was kind of too little too late. Hmm. The reason Hoover didn't really want to get too involved is because he believed that the government should not directly intervene in the economy, had no responsibility to create jobs, and had no responsibility to provide economic relief to citizens. Right. And these beliefs served him well uh, in the following presidential election in 1932, when Franklin Roosevelt was elected. So in terms of the context of when this film is coming out, things just keep getting worse and worse. Between the initial crash in 1929 to 1933, unemployment had risen from around 3% to 25%. Wow. And wages had fallen by 42%. Jeez. That's by 1933, which is kind of the worst point in the Great Depression, but... Like, we're falling fast when this movie comes out. Yeah, for sure. Which is why it's so interesting that, like, in the midst of this crisis, these theater chains are changing everything to go over to sound. And it kind of makes sense why maybe if this crash wasn't happening, maybe then they would have had the money to do widescreen but obviously not now. Yeah, it's sort of the thing where it's like, well, we can see that there's a demand for sound, and you can certainly see a difference between sound film and silent film, but, like, to see the difference between a wider aspect ratio and a higher quality film stock, like, yeah, maybe not, yeah. you know? Yeah, so the Bat Whispers is kind of like an oddity from this time period for having the 70mm magna film shooting style. Yeah, because, like, when would they have started production on this film? Um, I mean, this film was released in November of 1930, so probably during that year sometime. Okay, 
So in the midst of, like, banks going under and, like, all of the drama, I'll say, of the crash, Mm -hmm. Roland West is like, ah, the perfect time to start using a very expensive type of film. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Well, part of Hollywood's response to the Great Depression had been almost like to pretend that it wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like to create films that were based around spectacle and based around extravagance and expense and putting a lot of money on the screen almost as a way to try and make films an escape for people so that they can see all these amazing things that were now completely impossible in their day-to-day lives. And by creating that escape and that fantasy to increase the appeal of those films. Yeah, like I'm thinking of the film Gold Diggers of 1929, mm-hmm. where like like they're even talking about the problems of the Great Depression, but it's all solved because it's a musical and look at all the extravagance on the stage because it's like a theater play musical within the film musical yes. and and yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to the earlier version of the Bat that we've already seen, the silent version, the Bat Whispers features an entirely different cast. Okay. Uh, Top to bottom. Uh, With the introduction of sound, West felt it was imperative to, quote, drop the dummies, unquote. That being his name for silent film actors. Oh, dear. And uh, instead to get experienced stage actors. I I guess I see where he's coming from. I wouldn't use that language with people you've worked with, but... Well, West never really had the highest opinion of actors to begin with. Oh, boy. That's true. I forgot about that. Probably the best-known members of the cast of this version are Una Merkel as Dale. She was a popular early sound-era actress whose career got a boost from the fact that many of the former big-name stars found their careers suddenly over with the introduction of sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's Chester Morris as Detective Anderson. He had previously been nominated for a Best Actor Oscar when he appeared in West's film Alibi. As before, uh, West was primarily interested in continuing to innovate and experiment with film form and technique, and less concerned with his actors and performance. Uh, But The Bat Whispers would be yet another hit for Roland West. But he would only direct one more film after this, 1931's Corsair, before the scandal of his affair with actress Thelma Todd and her subsequent death under suspicious circumstances would end his career. Mm-hmm. While Todd's death by carbon monoxide poisoning was ruled an accident by authorities, West would later confess to her murder on his deathbed in 1952. Yeah. So let's watch the film. <laughs> how, uh, how are we watching this, Ben? Uh, well, The Bat Whispers got a really nice restoration from Milestone in its 70mm widescreen form uh, on DVD. However, that DVD is, of course out of print. Uh, so it's a little hard to find. So we will be watching that restoration on YouTube, uh, where it's been uploaded. And I have added it to our YouTube Scream Scene playlist. Great. Uh, if listeners would like to watch along, they can find that playlist at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. In the meantime, you will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be back after watching The Bat Whispers. <laughs> I suppose it should be The Bat Whispers. Welcome back, everyone. We just finished watching The Bat Whispers from 1930. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? I'm so upset, Ben. Why? (laughs) Because I had such hopes for this movie. I really loved the original. Mm -hmm. I remember having to, like, push for it to make the top ten or something when we ranked The Bat. You really liked The Bat. And this just let me down so much. I can't understand why, because it's the same movie (laughs) in sound. Let me rephrase this. West let me down. Huh. Okay. I'll be interested to hear you go into detail on that, because I think you and I are going to end up having different (laughs) opinions on this movie. Oh, 
should we even summarize this? Like, I'll, it's the, exactly the same. It is exactly the same as the original. Except one character is different. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'll do it really quick for cool. anyone who's listening to this episode who has not heard the original Bat episode, which was episode 16. In brief, the Bat is a thief who steals things and kills people, and he's decided to take a little bit of time off uh, and leave the city to, to get the heat off of him, and so he goes to a small town called Oakdale to rob the bank there, but someone's already robbed it ahead of him, and that someone hightails it for the Fleming Mansion, uh, which is owned by the owner of the bank in question, who is apparently vacationing in Europe, and whose gambling addict nephew has leased it to a woman named Cornelia Van Gorder, who is pretty rad. Uh, and she's still pretty rad in this version, I would say. Same kind of character. She's basically an unflappable old lady who is not bothered by anything. Cornelia is joined there by her maid, Lizzie Allen, who is pretty much the exact opposite in that she's constantly afraid and pretty dumb. Um, <laughs> and her niece, Dale, who is engaged to be married with Brooks Bailey, who is suspected of the bank robbery because he was the cashier at the bank. A whole ton of other people also show up at this mansion all through the movie, most of whom have connections to either wanting to get the money that was robbed or wanting to find out who has the money that was robbed. The most important person who shows up is Detective Anderson, who is the detective from the big city who is after the bat. After a large amount of running around and running up and down staircases, <laughs> we find I mean, out... the novel is called The Circular Staircase. For sure. We find out that uh, the owner of the bank, Fleming, stole the money from his own bank to hide it in his house, and the bat followed him there and killed him, and then we find out that the bat was actually Detective Anderson, because the real Detective Anderson got knocked out by the bat and stuffed in the garage. Uh, same deal as the original. Uh, and then at the end of the film, Chester Morris, the actor playing Detective Anderson and the Bat, uh, steps out from behind a curtain to politely ask us all not to reveal the Bat's true identity or he's going to show up and kill you. So I guess I've violated that rule. Oops. I mean, A, dude's probably dead by now. Sure. B, if they didn't want random people on the street to know that Detective Anderson is the Bat... Maybe the film itself should not have been giving it away the whole entire film. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to judge because we've seen the original. It's the same twist. All they did was, there are two detectives in the movie. There's a, a competent one who turns out to be the bat, and there's a comic relief one. And in the first version of this movie, the competent one was Detective Morelli, and the comic relief one was Detective Anderson. And in this one, they've changed their names, so the competent one is Anderson, and the comic relief one is Jones. But other than that, it's the exact same twist. And I mean, the original only came out four years earlier, too. You know, it's hard for me to say because I've seen the original, so I knew what was coming, but it really did feel like this movie foreshadows that Anderson is the bat much more heavily than the original did. Okay, for example, we see a man just like walking to the house, just kind of like looking around, and then the bat attack him and drag his body into the garage. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't see who's being attacked, and we don't, you know, and the bat's wearing a mask and stuff. So, I mean, it's still mysterious, but we didn't even see that scene in the original. Yeah, and there were points where I felt like this movie was trying to do shorthand, despite the overwhelming amount of exposition that people were delivering, they were trying to do shorthand in order to, like, just get on with the action or something. Hmm. Um, because things aren't wrapped up as neatly as they are in here. Or if they are, there's so many people yelling that I can't follow who is delivering the exposition. Hmm. Like, there's no explanation given for why the doctor is hanging around. Like, he just shows up... He's not called because of someone's nerves. We know from seeing the original film that he is in cahoots with Fleming Sr. to split the money, mm -hmm. whatever. But that's not explained here. They did get around to explaining that eventually. I don't recall that. When, when did it happen? Uh, did I when miss it? It's when, quote, Anderson, unquote, the bat pretending to be Anderson, confronts the doctor after he's been hit on the head, quote, unquote, and is like, you there. Like, I know you're in cahoots with the Elder Fleming. So they did talk about that. That was established. Okay. The, the story feels a little bit... 
it's it's really tough for me to judge because I did feel like this one wasn't as easy to follow, and I wasn't sure how much of that was just people talking really quickly or people talking like off mic a little <laughs> bit too much or or problems like that. The other thing I wasn't certain was whether it was just the fact that because I had seen the original, my brain was filling in the blanks for me, so I was missing where they were establishing that information in the new one. I'd be interested in like how someone who hadn't seen the original would view this film. Mm -hmm. My other problem with this film is, again, to kind of compare it to the original. I'm doing so because it's the same director. If it was different directors, then I'd be like, you know, it's not really fair to do so. But this one didn't feel like it had the same kind of style. It wasn't as... Interesting. ...focused on trying to deliver the visual stylings that wowed me in the original and... Oh. It was really like the visual stylings of the original that made me like the German expressionist things with like shadows and like the way that the spotlight was in the living room that one time like that was really cool to me. None of that is in this. You get a little bit of stylings uh, with model photography all the way up until you get to the house and then once you get to the house a lot of that just disappears. And you see a little bit of West experimenting with, um, I think, like some crane cameras uh, through like the backyard of the house, and um, a bit of some experimentation with the sound equipment to try to do moving camera but still having sound in certain ways. But it felt a little repetitive because the only time that um, so he does a, this thing a, a couple times where something spooky is about to happen. Uh, and you know because, like, you hear the thunder rumbling. So you can have, like, the camera moving a little bit. And you don't have to worry about, like, someone talking. Um, because it's, like, hidden by the thunder. And there's one scene where, like, this stood out as, like, Oh, cool, you're trying something new. Um, and it's a shot of the maid and Cornelia walking down a hallway. And you can kind of hear them talking, but he's doing clever things with hiding their faces. So you don't have to worry about, like... Because they would have had it to be dubbed in later because the camera's moving, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they walk through kind of a dark hallway and then you actually see their faces when they're talking when they finally come to a stationary point. Like, stuff like that was neat because he's trying out new things. But it wasn't consistent enough for me to be like, oh, West is wowing me in the same way. And I, I don't know if that's because, like, he's trying out different things with the sound equipment. We're so used to sound films now mm -hmm. that, like, any kinds of experiments he was trying or new techniques he was trying, just I didn't notice because I'm so used to sound film now. I would get it if he didn't want to do the same kind of, um, for lack of a better word, gags or visual, like, tricks as the first one. Um, mm -hmm. Because then it would seem like, oh, you're just rehashing what you've already done. But in lieu of that, you should either, like, you should do something more when you've already set the bar so high and it felt like he was just shooting a standard thing unless there was something interesting going on with the sound. So that's why I wonder if he was just playing around with sound tech rather than what was going on screen. And I think also that like perhaps the reason why for me he failed to wow me in the same way is because he's unfamiliar with sound technology. Um, like it's pretty new People have been experimenting with um, the visual side of cameras for since it was invented, right? So he had a lot more um, to kind of play with having these established techniques, whereas with sound it wasn't really there. And this kind of draws back to uh, another episode. We were talking about um, Paul Lenny in uh, his Cat and the Canary. Mm -hmm. uh, it's episode 19, if people remember. Um, we talked about how Lenny was inventing whole new tools and methods. Mm -hmm. And in that discussion, we kind of mentioned how West was using those same things, but he wasn't inventing them. Yeah. Um, it's not so much like stealing, but he was just copying those techniques. Mm -hmm. In The Bat Whispers, West has to <laughs> invent these whole new techniques and methods with sound. And he does some neat things, but he it shows to me that he's not an inventor but more of, um, and, and I don't want this to sound derisive because I don't mean it that way, but he's more of an imitator than an inventor in terms of cutting-edge film technique. Sure. 
I don't know if I fully agree with you. I see where you're coming from. I certainly think that, you know, what we see in this film is West learning from what Lenny was doing in Cat and the Canary. Because the most impressive stuff that West does in this film is with moving camera. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he refuses to let the fact that he has all this sound equipment around uh, chain down his camera. So he keeps it moving. He moves. There's so many impressive shots in this film. You know, like, there's one shot where we're outside the house, and the house is a model, and we move through the entire front yard towards, like, a window on the house, and then we move through that window into the house, and then we move, like, down a hallway, and then, like, through a door crack and into a door. And you can see that he's, like, cut at certain points, but the splicing's pretty good to match the cuts to make it feel like one long, big, continuous shot. And he does a few things like that all throughout. I would disagree in that, like, I found the visuals of this movie to be impressive. Um, And I really thought that he was doing a very impressive job keeping the film very stylish and on the move and innovative, both in visuals and sound. I do think that a lot of what he's doing is taking what Lenny was doing in Cat in the Canary and expanding on it the same way that in the original Bat he was taking what previous directors had done and expanding on it. Like that kind of moving camera that we really first noticed it in Cat in the Canary, for example. Mm Mm-hmm. I think for me, the biggest problem with Bat Whispers isn't so much that it didn't live up to the Bat for me, because like if you go back and listen to that episode, I didn't enjoy the Bat as much as you did. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, but I, it didn't wow me the way it wowed you. This film, my problem with it is more just that it's basically the same movie. Yeah, like the only two differences that I noticed is in the bat, we have a Japanese butler. Right, they got rid of the Japanese butler and replaced him with a weird... Like another comic relief character who's like the caretaker. Yes. And is just kind of a bumbling dude. Scaredy cat. And then the other difference is in this film, Fleming Sr. is abroad, whereas in the original... He was dead. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny is that in both films, the opening sequence is probably the most visually stunning bit. Yeah. Like, I remember the uh, first scene in The Bat being visually stunning, and the first scene in this movie is equally stunning. And it makes me wonder if the play doesn't just start at the house with mm-hmm. Cornelia. Like, I'm, I'm betting that that first scene isn't in the play, because that's always the scene that Wes seems to put his visual stamp on the yeah. most before heading into the house. And what I noticed about this film was that I really liked the photography in this film. I thought this movie was really stylish and really was doing cool new things, but it was only doing it between dialogue scenes. Mm, like I would agree. Yeah, like you'd have a dialogue scene and then say in between you might see the bat zipping around the house prepping traps or hiding things or zooming from one place to the other and those shots would be really cool. Like there was one shot that was like an overhead camera that was tracking the bat prepping a trap or something and I was like, oh my god, this is so cool. I've seen a lot of films from this kind of era, this early sound vintage. These are some of my favorite movies and like I've never seen one that had as much moving camera as this one does that has that feeling of unchained camera camera that this movie really goes for. I was really impressed with that stuff. But when it's time for a dialogue scene, what I noticed is that things kind of get a little bit locked off. He still tries to keep the camera a little bit alive, but the sequence of events, the lines of dialogue, the staging, and even the composition were almost identical to the previous film. What I did notice was, for my money, this house felt more realistic I think because it's a realistic size. Yeah. It doesn't have these cavernous rooms that are like, how does this mansion fit together? Although what's interesting is that the wider frame, uh, the widescreen frame, helps still give the feeling that the house is cavernous. Yeah. You know, rather than having giant sets and putting people in them, he's got sort of normal size sets, but because the frame is bigger, we can still dwarf people within the house. The other thing I noticed was that, like, maybe this is a different way of looking at things. You're sort of seeing this movie and saying, oh, the visual style seems so much more standard. And I I think I'm seeing the same visuals you are, but I'm kind of coming away from them a little different. Because what I remember about the original film was, you know, we'd have a, a normally lit room, kind of a brightly lit room, let's say. And then there'd be one spooky shadow that would go across it. Or we'd have a dark room and then one highlight of light. And in this movie, it felt to me like there was more variation or more subtlety. Like we'd have a dark room with a couple of light sources and then some shadows and stuff. There was more variety in the lighting. And to me, that spoke more to the fact that what I was talking about before the break, that like the film stocks had gotten better and you didn't need these giant lights on all the time. The house felt dark and spooky even before, you know, someone turned the lights out. 
the other thing that I noticed was like, you know, you were talking about missing some of the gags, like the, uh, the bat signal gag. Yeah. Right? Where it, that was the big one that stood out for you, where you missed not having stuff like that. What I noticed was that it seemed to me like what he was trying to do was replace some of the moments in the original that were very visually distinctive with moments that used sound instead. Yeah, I um, agree. Yeah. Yeah, like the, the bat signal moment instead is now like the bat's whispered voice chasing after people. You know, much more, instead of seeing his silhouette going around, we hear his voice. Uh, which makes sense to me, like, as a thing to try and do this time around. Yeah, I, I think a lot of, I'll say, gags and spooky scares mm-hmm. were done with sound. That's why I'm, like, I'm wondering if the reason that those didn't stand out as much to me is because I'm not in 1930s <laughs> seeing a sound film for the first time. Sure, sure. Maybe it was, like, the unsubtle visual style of the first one that really wowed me because... Mm-hmm. That isn't seen very often, even now. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Like, for me, I I really liked the kind of darker visual palette of this film. Mm -hmm. In my head, at least that's how I think of it. You know, it's so weird. He's making basically the same movie again. So it's almost like someone putting on, you know, watching a theater company do their, like, 50th performance of a play (laughs) that they've been doing, right? The things that impressed me were that he figured out how to get the most out of what he was doing. Like, I was really impressed that he knew how to compose shots for the widescreen aspect ratio that he's using, this two-to-one ratio, because I know that many directors really struggled with wide ratios in the 50s when they started becoming really commonplace. But West uses his, like, totally naturally. Like, he really knows how to compose his shots for it. Uh, That impressed me. I was impressed with how he was using the sound. Like, this is one of our first sound horror films, The Cat Creeps is unfortunately lost, so I don't know what they pulled off in that, but like, already we've got, you know, creaking doors and rumbling thunder and bumps in the night, and like, that stuff's all kind of par for the course, but this is the first time we are seeing anyone do it, so it's Mm -hmm. kind of, to me, I appreciated seeing that, like, he figured it out that quickly, that like, oh, I can do these things, um, and really use these low, bassy thunder sounds to kind of get the dread up in certain scenes. That said, I, if there's one thing that I don't like about this movie, actually, there's a few, (laughs) but if there's one thing I think the original did better, it was the Bat's costume. Oh, yeah, it's just a dude in a cape with, like, a ski mask on. Yeah, he's wearing, like, a a black balclava and then he's got like a cape that's kind of like got a high Dracula collar but this cape does do the bat wing thing where if he holds up the cape it's all uh, like two big bat wings but unfortunately this guy doesn't have the the bat ears so it's like one guy like I want I want the old guy's mask on this guy's cape I want to know the creative decision behind not having a creepy bat mask right like is it oh it was hard to see through for the actor I don't think that would be it, because mm. the guy could, like, you could see the dude's eyes in the yeah. bat mask. It, so it felt like, if... like, we don't want to do something, like, goofy. Yeah, I was about to say, it feels like a, oh, that was goofy. I do appreciate what West was doing with the bat's voicing, mm. because I, I'm pretty sure, I, I would bet money that he was dubbed in later because like you don't see the bat on screen but his voice is done so in a way that it sounds like he's whispering but he's like right in your face and yeah, in the theater yeah. it would sound like he was coming from all around the room mm-hmm. um, and I think that's a really interesting way to to make him threatening especially when all he has on is a ski mask yeah he's he's kept in the shadows a lot more uh, and just his outfit which is much more plain blends into the shadows to a greater degree and I think you're you're totally right about the sound design because if Morris had been whispering on set while wearing a ski mask, like no way would a 1930 mic have even picked him up, right? Yeah. So it's clearly been like dubbed in later, but it is like an effective thing because if you were in a theater, yeah, it would just sound like this guy was whispering all around you, which is pretty creepy. I think that Morris is probably one of my favorite elements in this movie, to be honest. Oh, really? I found he was really like... He was really hamming it up when he was the bat. Yeah. I, I don't know if I can, like, blame him for that, <laughs> but I, I did find it tiresome. See, that's what I enjoyed, though. <laughs> like, I found the cast to be a real mixed bag in this movie. Like, totally. they were the cause of some of my biggest frustrations. So Chester Morris really chewing the scenery as Anderson or as the bat, like, I really enjoyed. Because even, you know, when he's the bat, he just starts really, like, going full villain camp. 
But, like, even as Anderson, like, he's having a lot of fun being this, like, bad cop kind of detective type. There's also just the fact that the coming of sound means that I get to enjoy people with those, like, quintessentially 1930s, transatlantic, old-timey radio-style <laughs> voices. Like, Anderson talks like this, see? I'm gonna find the bat, and don't you worry about it. <laughs> and I just, oh, I just enjoy hearing those voices so much. Or Fleming's nephew, who's got that kind of, like, Good evening, I'm not American or British. I'm someone in a 30s movie kind of voice, right? They're delightful. For me, the biggest problem with the cast in this film is the comic relief characters. There's so many. There's three of them. There's Lizzie Allen, the caretaker, and Detective Jones. And for me, like, I remember being surprised in the original Bat that Lizzie didn't annoy me that much. I did not have that same surprise in this movie. (laughs) All these people become very unbearable to me now that they can talk, because now they can just fill the movie with their wailing and their screams and their moaning and their whines, and it's like, I just, it really pushes those characters over the edge to me into why hasn't the bat killed this person yet territory. Yeah. Um, I do think that, like, this movie makes decisions where stuff that was on screen in the original isn't on screen in this one. Or, like, there'll be bits where, uh, like, the fight between the Bat and Fleming happens totally in the dark, and we don't really see it. Mm-hmm. I think we saw it more in the original. Um, and I, I don't know, like, how much of the problems that you're having come down to, like, expectation versus, like, what you're seeing, where you're expecting to see kind of... Sort of like with our thing with the remake of Student of Prague, where we docked it really hard for not having moments that we remembered from the original. I think you're right that there is a level of, you see the original and you're like, I love this, and then you see the remake and you're like, that was shit because it wasn't the original. Yeah. I think that is probably what's going on. I think that, like, because, I mean, things like what you're talking about, like, it's just, like, questions of what to emphasize. I think the more pressing problem with us having seen both versions is that, like, like obviously it seems you've made up your mind on this topic, but I'm finding it hard to decide what I find to be the better film of the two. And, okay. and the reason for me, I think, is because I've seen both. Like, for me, it just sort of feels like whichever one I saw first would probably be the one that I would like. Because I found the biggest problem that I was having with the Bat Whispers is that there's nothing really new. Mm. Like, if you've already seen the Bat... There's not a huge reason to see this movie other than it's in widescreen and has sound. Yeah. Like, it's technically more capable. It's got maybe more technically superior lighting or cooler camera movement or these new effects or whatever. Um, And that sort of gives it an edge. But, like, the machinations of the plot, the way that people go and come from rooms, you know, each scene and sequence is exactly the same. So for me, that made the movie kind of go from engaging to tiresome because I'd already seen the earlier version. So it was like, yep, and now we're doing this scene. Yep, and now we're doing this scene because it's so exactly beat for beat the original. The the stuff that I did like in terms of West trying new things, and I think this is where I agree with you, wasn't new enough and engaging enough to make this film different enough to really get me excited. Um, I think if I saw this movie without having seen the original... I might have a higher opinion of it. And it's not necessarily because I find the original so much better. It's just because these movies are pretty much the same. I think we're saying the same thing, but coming at it from two different points. Mm. Because I agree that it's essentially the same, but doesn't wow me because the tricks he's trying to do don't wow me enough. Sure. I guess. Yeah. Should we move on to ranking? For sure. Cool. So The Bat from 1926 is currently sitting at number 12. Yeah, so I think our first task is to decide whether this goes above or below. The original, The Bat, I find actually scary. Okay. Like, because of the mood setting and everything with the visuals and, like, how unsubtle it is, I love how just, like, just how far it goes with some of that stuff. Sure. Whereas this, I see what you're saying with stylishness, with the model photography, some cool things going on with sound. I didn't find this movie scary. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, I really liked the moving camera. I thought this was a movie that was very dynamic in a lot of places, where I was watching things going like, whoa, look at that. But yeah, I I don't think this movie was as scary as the original. That that I can totally agree on, yeah. I mean, counterpoint to my own point, (laughs) I remember you talking about how the one scene in The Bat that you did find scary was when it was the 
dude in the bat mask approaching the camera, and mm-hmm. we see Dale's reaction. Yeah. And in the bat whispers, we don't have an exact same scene to compare because Dale's reacting in darkness as we hear the bat laughing maniacally as he kills Fleming. He says, like, stand still so I can, like, wrap my hands around your pretty little throat or something like that. Mm -hmm. What do you think comparing those two parts? Well, you do get an equivalent because they do still have the shot of the bat coming directly at camera. I guess what I mean is, like, Dale's reaction shot. Sure, we don't get get her reaction, but we do get that shot of the bat coming closer. I think that it was better in the original simply because the bat himself looked scarier. What I did think was really effective was the addition of the bat's voice. You know, that we could now hear him saying, like, Oh, I'm going to get you. It was it was creepy, yeah. and, and I think that was effective. But I still think probably that the original wins for Spook Factor. Okay, so where would you put it, then, below the bat? Okay, so if we are putting it below the original, I don't think it goes much lower. Because, for the most part, they're identical movies. And, you know, this film's got a lot of stuff to recommend, too. It's got sound and sound effects, and it's got moving camera, and it's got all these other elements. So where I'm looking is number 14 uh, is where I'd put it. I'd put it below The Magician, but above The Sealed Room. So I see why you'd put it above The Sealed Room, but why below The Magician? Mostly, I guess, because... When I think of The Magician, I'm mostly just thinking of that third act that, like, <laughs> is like so many universal horror films to come. And also it's got that weird Hexen ripoff scene in the middle. Yeah. For me, The Magician was a little bit more innovative and doing some new things that later films would pick up on, right? Whereas this film, I mean, not to say that this is a bad thing. People put a lot of stock on innovation, on doing something new. Mm-hmm. The Bat Whispers isn't doing anything new, you know, other than its use of sound. I mean, in other films, it, this isn't the first sound film, it's just using it in a horror context. But, like, The Bat Whispers is, you know, a redo of The Bat using techniques that were developed in Cat in the Canary. And even the techniques that you're using aren't new. They're new to The Bat, but they're not new, period. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Doing something old, but doing it better is still good. Like, improving on old things is good. That being said, like, The Magician was very innovative. It was doing a lot of cool new things that later films would pick up on. The Bat Whispers is merely polishing an older effort. Bat 2.0. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that's why, for me, I'd put it below The Magician. I agree. I just wanted to hear why you'd put The Magician above it. Because you could argue that The Bat Whispers is being innovative... I I feel like innovative isn't the right word, but it's taking that next logical step of, like, spooky horror films with, like, the creaky doors and, like, thumps through the house and, like, the random bowling ball (laughs) down the stairs. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is clearly the next evolutionary step. That's for sure that we've been seeing in this little subgenre. Yeah, those things feel like, yeah, that's the next step. Whereas in The Magician... It was like, oh, sweet, we haven't seen a spooky castle in quite the same way with, yeah, with the, the laboratory, the weird, what year is it, village yeah. that is around it. Also, Paul Wigner is just a better villain than Chester Morris. Oh, yeah. Like, Chester Morris, I really want to see other movies with him now because I've got a bit of a crush on him, but, like, <laughs> Paul Wigner is a better villain, that's for sure. He kind of looks like Gomez Adams. Yeah, he's got that similar look, for It's probably sure. just because he has the same mustache, and I think he was wearing, like, a pencil stripe suit. Pinstripe. Pencil stripe suit. It's a pencil mustache. That's why uh-huh. you're getting that mixed up. Did Paul Wegner do any sound films? Yes. Why do you say it like that? Because uh, we'll be watching one eventually. Oh, okay. He cool. does a uh, remake of Unheimliche Geschichten in 1932 with Rickard Oswald. Oh, boy. Okay, so I think we are in agreement that we are putting the Bat Whispers at number... 14. 14. Yeah, it's coming in the list below the Magician and above the Sealed Room. Uh, If you would like to see this list, you can find it at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. At that website, you can also find the playlist, so if you want to see the original Bat, you can find it on the playlist. And, And this one, too. At our website, you can also submit an appeal through our Ask box. Uh, if Tumblr doesn't appeal to you, you can also email screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. 
Yell at us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday, and we can be found on iTunes. If you'd like to leave us a review, that's a great way for us to go up in the iTunes rankings so that other people can find us. And if you enjoy listening to the show, uh, please tell your friends who you think might enjoy it as well about it, um, because word of mouth is pretty much the only way that podcasts can grow their audience. Uh, and yeah, if you like the show, certainly tweet about it, uh, share us on Tumblr, uh, whatever. What we've... are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week we've got an episode that you're definitely going to want to stick around for. It's uh, quite a big deal episode for us, because uh, we will be watching from 1931, directed by Todd Browning, starring Bela Lugosi, Dracula. Awesome. I could not be more excited. <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies. You are beaming. Yep. Uh, so that's certain to be a really great episode, and we hope you will join us for it. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.